you come now to the scripture, uh, let me ask you to bow with me to pray. Uh, Father in heaven, this is, we know, your word, so I pray that you would enable us to be attentive, to be attentive to it. You've given it to us as a means of your grace to come to us, so I pray, Father, that uh, we wouldn't neglect it at all, but we would see it as that and realize our need for your word. And so give us good attention. Not only as it's read, but as we think about it together, this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy in chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to read verses 11 through 16. 1 Timothy chapter 4, please. Remember, this is a rather intimate, personal letter from Paul the Apostle to Timothy, this young pastor uh, in Ephesus. And... uh, So Paul continues his instruction to Timothy. Hear the word of God, verse 11. Command command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Interesting expression. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Paul is, 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 is writing this very personal letter to Timothy. Timothy, a pastor in this church. And sometimes we read these things and we wonder how much is there for us, really. We're not pastors, most of us at least. And we wonder, is this just for pastoral types or elders even? But, but, but how can this really be for us? And if it's so personal, how can it really relate uh, in any way to us? I suggest to you that it is not only personal to Timothy, it was, but also to us, not only to me and those on our pastoral staff, but also as well to you, because here we learn, as we read about how Timothy is to conduct himself in the church and how the church is to conduct itself as church. Remember that from First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. That we realize from, from all of that, from listening in, that we understand the, the very foundation of what church is to be, not just our gathering, but church, what we're to be as the people of God, as we live our lives, as we assemble together, what that really means. And here Timothy is called, if you will, to be an example to the church, the example to people. And so if he's to be an example, then we're to live as he lived. This isn't something just unique and special to Timothy. It's, it's we're to live as he lived. He's to be an example. We're to follow that example. So we learn how he's to live and say, oh, that's how we're to live as well. We're to follow after what Paul is telling Timothy to do. He's a pastor, but yet he's a follower of Christ. As a follower of Christ, he's to do to live a particular way, and we're to live that way as well. God gives to us models. He gives to us people we can look at who are to model that, but we aren't to just sort of look at them and say, oh, good for them. We're to receive the model. We're to watch the example. And we're to live it out. And so as we come and we hear how Timothy is to live, it helps us to know how we're to live as well. But but notice these things. In this opening 
expression, verse 11. Paul says to Timothy that he's to command and teach these things. What things? All the things about the truth of Christ. That Paul has been telling Timothy up until now. These things. I want you to teach these things. I want you to command these things. And you know what that tells us as church? Whether we want to be told this or not. That there are things that we need to be taught. And there are things that we must be commanded to believe and to do. Because Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. Command them to whom? To the church. Teach them to whom? To the church. So as church, we realize that when we gather together and we come, we're going to hear things that we're commanded to do. And we're to be taught that which we need to know. Now you think about it, Paul giving this to Timothy, he's no doubt reminding him, Timothy, you have to do this, because it's not an easy thing to do. As a pastor, especially a young pastor, Timothy, he says, you're young. Now that's a military expression, that expression young. It, it gives the, the sense that Timothy is something under 40 years old. We don't know exactly how old Timothy is. Some speculate that he's in his early 30s, whatever. He's under 40. And that makes him young in this culture. And that culture probably makes him young in some regard in our culture as well. And so as a young man, he's got to kind of get it together to be able to command people, even people older than himself. So, so that's a bit tough for him. Plus, we get the impression as we read through these epistles that Timothy's a bit timid. And so he has this natural inclination against commanding, probably. And so Paul says, you need to do this. Plus, he's in a very difficult place, as we've said. There are people who are teaching contrary to what he's teaching. And so he has to stand up to them and command them not to teach that. And here's what we ought to know. And so, again, all of this is being brought to Timothy. And he has to do this. And it isn't easy. And so Paul says, you need to muster this up. And he says, now, Timothy... Don't let them despise your youth, no doubt. Some weren't respecting him because he just was a little bit too young for them. And Paul says, now don't let that happen. Now, when you think about this, that there are people in the midst of the church, pastor types, who come and command and teach. And you say, isn't that way too much authority to give any one particular person? Couldn't that authority be tremendously abused? The answer, of course, is yes. It can be. And so as we read through, as Paul speaks to Timothy, we see the sort of the, the, the boundaries or the corrections to that, to that abuse. Because on the one hand, he says, Timothy, you've been gifted. There were prophetic words said about you and to you concerning this office. Notice how he puts it in verse 14. He says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, there's been this whole thing that's happened. The elders of the church have recognized that you are to be a pastor. They've heard from the Holy Spirit. They've spoken in such a way that says, yes, this is true. They've laid hands on you. They've set you apart. You've gone through this whole process, been approved, if you will, by the church. We call that the process of ordination, long process, deliberate process. Mistakes can be made in the midst of the process, but still the process. So in the context of church, no one should have that role lest they've been through such a process and the church being convinced that it is in fact the Holy Spirit who is calling this person and they see the gifts, but still that isn't enough. 
Because Paul says, don't let them despise your youth. And, and you could, if that was the only thing you heard, you might think, well, Timothy would stand up the next Sunday and said, here I am, I've been gifted, prophetic words have been said about me, now listen. That isn't what Paul said to him at all. He said, earn it. He said, be an example to them. Be an example to them in your speech. Over time, as they hear you talk, as they hear you talk about God, as they hear you talk about others, as you, they hear you speak to others, if they hear the way that you speak, you see, Timothy, after a while, they should gain respect for you. If they don't, then none of the rest of this matters. So, Timothy, always on your mind, you have to be thinking, what am I saying? How am I saying it? To whom am I saying it? Who am I saying it about? They need to grow in confidence in you. So be this example in your speech and your conduct. Timothy, watch the way that you live and everything should be on your mind that I need to live in such a way that people will know that, yes, I have been called. Yes, I have been gifted. Yes, yes, I am the one who's to speak these things and even command these things and to teach these things in the context of the church. That's who I am. But he says, you earn that, by the way, where you live your life. Richard Baxter an old, dead, Puritan preacher, said to a group of pastors, be careful, lest you unsay with your life that which you say with your lips. You need to watch our conduct, he says to Timothy, be careful, people should be able to see you, I can trust that man. Even though he's young, I can trust him, because I've heard him talk, and I know what he says, and I know it's in his heart, and I've seen him live and then he goes on to say, not only in those areas of speech and conduct, uh, Timothy, but also in, in love. In, in the way that you love your affections. People should know that you love God, that you love them. He said, not only that, but also in your purity. Purity of your faith, obviously. The purity of your beliefs, obviously. But also the purity of your life. And no doubt, Timothy, being a young man and knowing... Paul and how blunt he could be knowing even Timothy saying, Timothy, in your sexual life it needs to be pure. You're a young man, as far as we know, a single man. We don't know that he was or not, but a single person. And so you need to be pure sexually, Timothy, so that people trust you. And you need also to watch your faith. Not only that it's strong, that your faith in God is strong, your faith in Christ is strong, but you're a faithful person. So Timothy was to live that way and so that people would trust him. But not only that, so that others would see that's what it means to follow Christ and they would follow his example. So then all these tables are turned and put on us, you see, because that's the way Timothy was to live and that's the way we're to live. We are, as believers in Christ, to live in such a way that people know that we're followers of Christ because of how we talk. Because how we speak of God. Because how we speak of others, because of how we speak to others. If to watch our language, I remember years ago when I was in graduate school in economics at Florida State University, I came home from class one day and I said, I think this guy named Paul is a Christian. And Karen says, how do you know? And I said, because he never cusses or anything. 
And I have to tell you, at that moment in time, I was convicted because I grew up in locker rooms during my junior high and high school days. And I learned to speak in a particular way. And that just carried with me. I was a believer in Christ, but my language would have made a sailor smile. And as soon as I said that, I thought, I wonder if anybody knows I'm a Christian because of the way I talk. Transformed my life at that point in time because I began to think what's really important is that people know I'm a follower of Jesus. And so I have to watch everything, even the subtle things, even the, even the things that when I'm not talking about him, but I'm just talking. I have to be cautious about all of that, how I conduct my life. How much am I unsaying by my life? Concerning Christ. Do you realize that our lives define the words that we use? Do you realize that in some sense, not in an absolute sense, but in some sense, people should know the meaning of compassion by our lives. People should know the meaning of mercy by our lives. People should know the meaning of love by our lives. People should know the meaning of justice by our lives. People should know the meaning of grace by our lives. People should know the meaning of forgiveness by our lives. You see, we use those words, it's one thing, but all those words come in context. If a terrorist uses the word justice, we think one thing. When a merciful, kind believer in Christ uses the word justice, we think another. Why? Context. Context of life. Very life that word flows out of. And so you see, we're not only teaching people about Jesus, we're not only showing them Jesus by the things that we say, but we're showing them by our very lives. We're defining those words. And if you're not a gracious person, who's going to hear about grace from you? If you're not a forgiving person, who's going to hear about forgiving forgiveness from you? If you're not a just person, who's, who, who, who's going to hear about justice from you? I mean, let's face it, we know this. And so Paul says to Timothy, you've got to live this to earn their respect so you can command them to live like this. And then they have to see it so they can live like that. So church, Watch your speech. Church, watch your lives. Church, what do you love? What do you love? Church, who do you believe? Church, are you faithful? Church, is your life pure? Then notice too, Paul goes on to Timothy. And he tells them, tells them in verse 13 this. He says, until I come, devote yourself, that is, that is be after these things. These are, these are important things, Timothy. Don't let these things slip by. These are central in your life as a pastor. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Then he goes on to say, do not neglect the gift that you have, and so forth. But verse 13, he says, really, I want you to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, now these are very important, you see. In fact, they're what we call, at least in part, the means of grace. So devote yourself to these, to these things. Now, a number of years ago, way back when, in the life of our church... Uh, the elders decided we needed a name for our church. Um, 
We had been known, I think, as the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of Lawrence. But they said, we need a name, you know, something. So we asked the congregation, well, what do you think our name ought to be? And it turned out to be that the congregation wanted the name to be Grace. Now, that wasn't my first choice, I must confess. I won't tell you what mine was, lost. But Grace is a fine one and an appropriate one, too. It speaks to us of the fact that everything that we've received from God is from His grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, grace, G-R-A-C-E. That's what it is, you see. And we celebrate that. We, we hold to that. If that isn't true, we're sunk. All that we have comes from his free gift to us. Not free to him, it was costly, but free to us. So I read this passage from Isaiah, Come to me, the prophet says, God says through the prophet, and buy and eat. You don't have any money, that's fine, still come. It's free the very grace of God. And we want to be a community of people that extends grace. But we could also say that we're a church that holds firm to what theologians call the ordinary means of grace. And we live by them. That is, there are spiritual means, there are spiritual instruments through which the grace of God comes. And there are ordinary ones, ordinary in the sense that these are the ones that God has given to the church. And he says, administer these, do these, and through these, my grace will come to people. And so we we find these ordinary, as opposed to extraordinary, God can bring grace over your wishes in various ways. But he says, these are the ordinary, these are the ways through which grace comes to my people, and even the lost people, to bring them to faith. And, And we list these out as the scripture, the word of God, if you will. And included in that is the preaching and teaching of God's word, the sacraments by which grace comes to us, you see, as we come to the table, as we're baptized and so forth. There's grace given. And also then through prayer as we seek the Lord and he's gracious to us, to hear us, to answer us, to help us, to strengthen us. And some would include in that is the the fellowship of the church. It's a gracious uh, community. And therefore, in the midst of all that, God's grace comes to us, most especially as we speak truth to each other, as we pray for each other, as we receive the sacraments together, all of that, you see. These means, ordinary means of grace. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy is, here's how your people will live. And here's how you'll live. They'll live by way of the word of God. Remember the word to the people in ancient Israel. Man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, this is is how we live. We can't live without the word of God. We can't spiritually live without without the word of God, in the same way that we can't physically live without bread. We can't spiritually live without the word of God. We will spiritually die without it. And so Paul says to Timothy, if you're going to be faithful in your charge and what you're going to do, and then he also says, church, thus this is what you need. You need the public reading of the word of God, the public reading of scripture, and you need It's preaching or exhortation and teaching. Now, when he says the public reading of the word, he means to read it out loud. And you think, why? Why out loud? I mean, why publicly? I mean, most of our elementary school teachers taught us for years how to read without moving our lips, right? And they would say, now read quietly 
and to yourself. There was always one kid in the class who liked to read everybody and then, you know, do that. So why? And we said, well, culturally, obviously, in the days that this was written, not everybody had Bibles, not everybody had the Old Testament, not everybody had these letters that Paul had written. Uh, they were just came to one or two, if you will. And, and so not everybody had them, and not everybody's literate. So they, there had to be this public reading of the Word of God. And we find that throughout the history of ancient Israel, there was public readings all the time. Moses, as he came down from the mountain, read the law to the people. Before Moses died, he read it again. We call it Deuteronomy, or the second law, the second giving, if you will, of the law. When Joshua brought the people into the promised land, he, he read to them. And we find it again and again and again. Read it, read it, read it together. They were to read the scripture, this Old Testament law, at every feast and festival. In fact, what happened was, when they stopped reading it at the feasts and festivals in ancient Israel, their sacrifices became empty and unacceptable to God. The reason being, they had no idea why they were making these sacrifices. Because you see, the word informed the sacrifices and said, this is what that means. And so once the word was taken out of that, the sacrifices meant nothing. You might remember that King Josiah, during his reign, found, he didn't find it, some others found, found it, the law of God, the word of God. They found it, oddly enough, in the temple. And they read it. And when they read it, there was revival that broke out. People repented and they experienced the Passover as they hadn't for generations. And great revival broke out. But then over time, of course, they lost it again. They had it physically, but they lost it in the context of their community. And ultimately, then, the people were exiled. God just sent them off and sent them, and sent them away. Then when they returned, after the exile, Ezra, the faithful priest, brought them back. And when he did, he brought them back to the very word of God. Notice how it's put in the book of Nehemiah, in, uh, in chapter 8, verse 5. Nehemiah writes, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord and the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then he lists all the Levites who came, he says, who helped the people to understand the law. Well, the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so here we have in the midst of this assembly of the people of God, the reading of the word, the preaching of it, the proclaiming of it, the instruction of it, even as it went out. And, and, and the people were blessed by it. It was like they were given life in the midst of all of that. And then, of course, as the Israelites were dispersed and synagogues uh, came up, they began to gather together weekly and read the law, read what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, we, we found in our reading this morning from Luke chapter 4 that that's exactly what happened in the life of Jesus. He went to a synagogue, and they knew him to be a rabbi, and so he read from the prophet Isaiah. They, they did that all the time, this public reading of the word. And it wasn't simply that they weren't literate. It wasn't simply that they didn't all have copies. But it was because there was something about the coming together of the people of God and hearing this 
law and saying amen to it. This all is, this is binding on all of us. We all buy in. We all agree. This is the very word of God. These commands, this teaching is for us all together. And it bound the people together under God. And it gave them, if you will, life. Moses says, these words are not idle words for you. They are your life. And they received it as such. And then when the New Testament letters and the New Testament Gospels began to be written, they would be sent to the church and they would, churches and they would be read. Paul said in Colossians and in Thessalonians and the Philemon, he said, read this to the whole church. Now that was amazingly significant because the only thing read aloud together in the whole church was the scripture. And so when Paul said, read these letters of mine, he was saying, they're just like the law of Moses. They're just like the prophets. They're just like the Psalms. This is what they are, the very word of God. And so they would read them aloud in the midst of that. In fact, in the history of the church, again, even after the printing press, and even after people had Bibles, and even after people could read and all of that, still in the church, the word of God is read. It's often neglected in our day. Even, I realize, sometimes by us. I mean, we read a bit of it. I read what I'm going to read, what I'm going to preach about, and we do that. We always read that ahead of time. We always read it before the preaching so that everybody knows this is it. This is the commands come from here. They don't come from me. The instruction doesn't come from me. It comes from here. This is the wisdom of God. If you can't find it here, don't listen to it and all of that. So, So the reading of the text, the reading of the scripture sets it all up. And we're called to worship by by the reading of scripture, sometimes responsively otherwise, so that we all can find our voices in the midst of this. But it's it's the word of God. But, but sometimes that's all. And in the history of the church, there's been generally a reading from the law, generally a reading from the prophets, generally a reading from the gospels, generally a reading from the epistles. So that's what we did today, by the way. That's why all those readings you may have thought, what's he doing today? Aren't we supposed to read this together responsibly? Isn't there one too many? I figured I could read a lot today, but none of you would leave the church going, he read far too much from the Bible today. (laughs) Just if you think that, you won't say it. You have enough pride at least. But you see, that's, that's the way it's always been in the church. Why? Couldn't we read it ourselves? And the answer, of course, is yes. But I really don't want to take a show of hands to see how many actually did read Bible this week. Sometimes I shudder to think how much Bible I would read if you didn't pay me to read it. I mean, I know the struggles of life. I know the getting up in the morning and getting to work and getting on with it. I know the getting home and having another pile of things to do once you're there. I know the sense of getting the kids to bed or whatever it is that you're doing that evening. And then I know the tiredness of going to bed. And then I know the getting up the next day and doing the same thing over again. And there's no Bible read. And so God would say, Timothy, remember when the church gathers on that day, whether it's whenever that day is, the first day of the week for the church. He says, remember, I've given you this cycle of seven days where you need to come together. And when you come together that you would read this word, make sure they get it. Make sure they hear it. My suspicion is some of you have read a good bit of Bible this week. My other suspicion is I read the first Bible this week that you've heard. And for some at least, perhaps I've doubled it just by reading four chapters, right? 
No guilt trip, just truth. So we need to hear it, you see. We need to hear it. It's a very means of grace. Now I know it's difficult to listen sometimes to long passages read in the scripture because, because we're a very uh, visual uh, culture these days, not so auditory. That's why I, I didn't put it up there for you to follow along with. I just want you to listen to it. One of the reasons for that, one of the reasons for listening is because that's the way that God communicates to us. He speaks to us. He speaks to us by his word. And so he says, I want you to listen to this. And you see, as we do that, here's what we're reminded of. That the truth from God doesn't originate from a dialogue between us and God. It doesn't originate by way of conversation with him. It originates with him. It comes from him. Uh, One of my old dead mentors, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, please always be aware that the truth of God is a monologue. It comes from him. It's revealed from him. It isn't negotiable. Oh, we comment back and we we ask questions about it and we talk about it to ourselves. But but the truth itself isn't negotiable. It's a monologue. It comes from God. It isn't a conversation that he strikes up with us and says, what do you think? Great passage in Isaiah with the prophet Isaiah. God through the prophet Isaiah says, come, let us reason together. And you say, okay, God, finally we can sit down and talk. And the next line is, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And I thought, God, I thought we were going to reason together. And God would say, yes, I am reasoning with you. You're a sinner, but here's what I can do. I can cleanse you. That's reasonable. Because it isn't, as C.S. Lewis put it, that God is in the dock. That doesn't mean God's tying up his boat. But dock in the English, British, legal sense. God being the, the, the criminal who's now under investigation that God isn't there. God comes to speak and we are to receive that. And so you see, this whole church thing, when we gather together, the reason we speak it, the reason we say it, the reason we do it this way isn't because any of us particularly likes it or doesn't like it. That's not the point at all. It's to remind us, and by the very form of it, that, that God is speaking. That it's he who's talking. And that we're to listen to him. And commands are being made, but it's not under the authority of the preacher, it's under the authority of the word of God. And so that's the test of it. That's why the Bereans in the book of Acts went to the word of God to see if the things Paul was saying was really so. And, and we all need to do that, you see. That, that's where Timothy's authority would come from. The, the commands that he was commanded to make would come from the very word of God. If it didn't, then it was useless and worthless. Worse than that, blasphemy. So you see, that's who we're to be, listeners to all of, all of this. And sometimes we say, well, I don't, it's hard for me to listen, and I know that. But if that's the way God has chosen to communicate to us, then we need to train ourselves to listen. As we come into worship very often, and I'm guilty of this myself, I, I come rather passively especially on those Sundays when I'm not preaching anywhere. I just come in, I just sit and I relax and I say, do it. You know, nobody's going to quiz me at the end. It's kind of the best of all possible worlds. I just sit there and act like I'm getting it. But it isn't to be passive, it's to be active. 
That's why we make you stand up and sit down and do all kinds of things and read and speak and all that and find your voice sing. Why? So you're in it. And then we're to listen, you see. To listen. This is a means of grace. Not only the reading of the word, the public reading of the word, but the preaching and the teaching of it. The difference between preaching and teaching, teaching instruction, teaching informs, teaching lays it out, if you will. It explains, but, but preaching goes at the heart of it, the will of it, the, 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 the heart of the matter, you see, and moves us. That's why some have said, some have said the, the best definition of preaching is this notion of logic, teaching, on fire, that is to say. It moves, it burns in our souls. And this is the very word of God. If it isn't, then we have no hope to be moved by it. But we all should be expecting God will, will speak to us. God will help us in the, in the midst of this. And, and the great danger for us, you see, is that we may be thinking that when we come in, we're going to, to get five points or three points or six things to do. That we leave our lives will just become better. But you see, what we're to receive in the midst of all of this and all the words and all the singing is grace. There is one preaching professor of a different generation who would say to his preaching students this. He would say, when I come to your church, I will sit in the back and I will fold my arms And I will listen to you preach. And at the end of your sermon, I will come to you with one question. And that question is this. What do you want me to do? Now, far be it from me if you knew that man. I won't give you his name because if I did and you knew him, you'd say, Bill, you should never question him. But on this point... I think that's the wrong question. I think the right question that we all ought to have when we're listening is this one. What has Christ done? What has Christ done for me? What has Christ done for us? You see, it isn't a matter of me just getting a list of things so I can go out and do it. Oh yeah, there's things to do and there's things to obey and there's wisdom to learn and all of that. But in the midst, you see, of these worship times when we gather together on Sundays is to receive grace, and grace is that which Christ has done. And so what we should be always wanting to hear is what has Christ has done so that I can trust him more? What has Christ done so that I can rely upon him more? What has Christ done so that I can love him more? How has Christ done so I can be filled with peace? All of that, and then go out and do. But you see, always asking, what has he done? And here's why. Here's why this is of such importance. Notice 1 Timothy in chapter 4, this very last verse, this very last expression in this very last verse of what I read. Verse 16, Paul says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. That is, don't let this get out of your sight, any of this, of the public reading and the preaching and the exhortation and all of that. But he says, persist in this, and here's why. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, you wonder, Paul, what are you saying there? Are you saying, Timothy, that you're your own savior? By being a faithful preacher, a faithful pastor, you'll save yourself? Or Timothy, or Paul, what are you saying to Timothy? Are you saying that he's the savior? 
of his people and the people that come to that church that if he's faithful, then he will save them? And the answer, of course, is obviously no. There's nothing in the Bible, nothing in the writings of Paul that would give us the impression that anyone other than Jesus is the savior of anybody, Timothy, or the people in the church in Ephesus. So what's Paul mean by that? He's saying, Timothy, notice this. There are means by which God saves. And I've given the church these means. You're the pastor, give them. Church, receive them. And as you give them, the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, as you give that and people receive that, they will then be enabled to persevere to the end. Just like parents save their children, don't they? In the sense that you feed them, and that you house them, and you protect them, and all of that. And if you do that, then in that sense, you're enabling your children, at least for the time they're under your roof, to persevere, to stay alive. So Paul says to Timothy, listen, they need this to stay alive. They need this to persevere. They need this to to, to be able to, to grow. And so if you don't do this faithfully, you'll die. They'll die. But if you do it faithfully, they'll live. And so you see, we come together week after week. After a week, just like you go to the dinner table, day after day after day, just like you go to bed, night after night after night, right? Why do you do those things? Because they're necessary for a human being to live. And so we come together week after week after week to hear the word of God read, to hear the word of God proclaimed, to hear the word of God taught, so that I and you may live. We neglect it. We get sick. We don't neglect it. We prosper spiritually. One of the Narnia series books, um, C.S. Lewis wrote, The Silver Chair. You may know this story. As it begins, there's a young girl named Jill who has yet to, be, to, to, to go to this mysterious, magical land called Narnia that's governed by this lion named Aslan. But she finds herself, before actually entering into Narnia, Aslan has to blow her into Narnia, before she actually gets there, she meets him. And Aslan says, I have a task for you. And this task is of such significance that I have to give you these four signs that you must remember. If you forget them, you will not be able to accomplish your task. You must remember them. And so he gives Jill these four signs, blows her into Narnia. Now, if you know the story, you know in the very beginning, she remembered them. And she did well. But then over the course of time, she forgot them. They got mingled and mixed up in her mind. And she came to near disaster. It's only when they all got sorted out and straightened out and she got it that that, that she was successful. Now here's the introduction that Aslan gives to Jill concerning these four signs, these words. He said, stand still. 
In a moment I will blow, which means I'll get you into Narnia. He says, but first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night. And when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it doesn't confuse your mind. And the signs which you've learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it's so important to know them by heart and pay attention to appearances. Remember the signs. Believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Do you understand that on Sunday mornings when we gather, the air is very clear? you understand? That when we leave this place, the air gets very thick. You understand that when we hear these things here, we build certain expectations about what it's going to look like out there. And then we get out there and it doesn't always look that way. We've got to remember the truth. And so we come back every week. We come back Sunday after Sunday after Sunday where the air is clear so we get it again and again and again and again and to the degree that we don't give it again and again and again is the degree to which we're hurting you the degree that we do give it again and again and again and again is the degree to which we're helping you the degree to which you ignore it you're being hurt the degree to which you receive it you're being helped Because it really is thick out there. But here, you see, it's clear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that we would take advantage of all the clear air that we have. And that we would hear the very word of God and receive it and believe it and trust it and And Lord, that it would inform our souls in such a way as that when we leave this place, we would in fact walk faithfully with you. So Father, please plant deep in us this word of God. Grant to us your grace. Father, I pray for those students today at KU who graduate, and I pray as they leave this place and look for a church, they'll find a place that can nourish their souls, a place where the Word of God is read and preached and taught, that their souls may be nourished and that they may walk faithfully with you. Father, we pray for those who perhaps are looking out on a day like today and realizing Uh, days outside of this place and realizing that the air really is thick there and difficult there and they're suffering all kinds of issues of unemployment and difficulties in relationships and sadnesses in their own lives and disappointments and that you would give them grace by your very word. Uh, Father, we pray for uh, G. Marsh and his family on the death of his dad that you would give grace there. We 
Pray for the family of uh, Ruth Grubbs as Ruth has passed away this, this week. So, Father, we pray for Ruth's family, that you would be with them and bless them, give them grace. Father, we pray for Sandra Reed's mom in the in ICU in Texas hospital there, that you would be with her and comfort her there. And Father, for others who are suffering on this day, that you would pr- provide grace for them by your word, through your people, and for us all. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before the benediction, I want to introduce some people to you, some folks who have recently joined with us. And as I, I read their names, if you could just come and just stand just right up front here to my left. You don't have to come all the way up here, but just stand on the floor uh, right there. And if you just come and, and uh, after the service, you'll have an opportunity then uh, to greet them. Uh, Jean Epstein, uh, Kevin and Brittany Heingardner, Martha Hurley, Carla Westfall, and Sean Shelton, if you'll come. There's anybody else who expected to be introduced, but I didn't name you. Just come, all right? Uh, sometimes we leave people off inadvertently, and they go, oh, "What's that mean?" So just please come. And I remind you, there'll be more in the second service to introduce. But I remind you that being a member of Grace isn't—I mean, it's special. But what it means is that you believe in Jesus. Uh, there's no special hoops to jump through other than that. And just uh, believing in Jesus. And it identifies you then publicly with the body of Christ uh, here and in our community and so forth. And uh, enables you then to, to come under our shepherding, our care, we trust, of our elders and church. So if you're not a member and believe in Jesus, I invite you to join with us. You can find out how to do the call the office. We do classes and all that sort of thing, of course. But... Uh, it's a blessing. Believers should join, join churches. Let me ask you then all to stand while they remain up here. I'll pronounce the benediction. We'll sing a song. And then, sorry about that, you have to stand up here what you sing. I know it's a little funny. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go in the back. But, um, but you can turn and look at the, the, whatever those are called. Uh, and... Um, and sing with us. But at the end of the service, and they'll stay here, and rather than you just sort of rushing out, why don't you just come this way and say hi, and greet them as members. Some of you won't be able to do that, I suspect, but uh, others of you, others of you will. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. So only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. We stand and lift up our hands, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. We bow down and worship Him now How great, how awesome is He Together we sing Everyone sing Holy is the Lord God Almighty The earth is filled with His glory
Yeah.